So it's nice and convenient to see works in museums, but it's a very um, anachronistic way to see art. And what I enjoy most is looking forward to seeing a single piece that you have to go and find because it's where it was always designed for, whether it's like in a wayward church or um, you know something that you have to make an artistic pilgrimage for, and then you spend time with a single object rather than this immersion in dozens of objects, which is also nice in a museum. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Dr. Noah Charney, discussing his preference for works in situ. In the following conversation, Dr. Charney and I discuss a range of topics, from what inspired him to found the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, known as ARCA, to the range of books that he has written, including his most recent book, The Devil in the Gallery, How Scandal, Shock, and Rivalry Made the Art World. Dr. Charney also shares the top missing works that he would most like to see recovered. And we close with recommendations on books that he would suggest. Dr. Noah Charney, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Would you describe how the idea came about for founding the Association for Crimes Against Art and how its mission has evolved since it began? Of course. Well, um, ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, is a research group that I founded back in 2006 while I was still a postgraduate student. Um, And it came a sort of a a really roundabout way. We have to go back in time a little bit. And I thought I wanted to be a playwright. And I applied to Goldsmiths in London to study playwriting as a postgraduate degree and to the Courtauld Institute in London to study art history. And I was encouraged by my art history professors to go to Corto. I got into both of them and to become an informal playwright by attending a lot of plays. So I moved to London, I studied art history and the Corto Institute is at Somerset House, this beautiful palace on the Thames and right across the river is the National Theatre. And so I would see plays at least twice a week. And in London, they have this great deal. If you're a student on your own and you show up just before opening, you can get student tickets for 10 pounds. So I was just going nuts and I had a great time with this. And in the meantime, I got myself a playwriting agent and she said, well, plays are fine. But if you actually want to make a living as a writer, um, you should write a novel. And do you have one? And I said, no, but I, I will go and write one. So I went off and spent a summer researching as I was trained to do as a postgraduate student. Um, Because I wanted to set a novel behind the scenes in the art world. And this was just when Da Vinci Coded came out um, and the Thomas Crown Affair, the remake with Pierce Brosnan, which was a really fun, very stylish art heist film. And I quite would quite like the idea of selling copies like the Dan Brown books did. (laughs) And, And so I tried to do research into real life art crime, forgery and art theft, in particular museum security to try to figure out um, a real basis for my plot. Um, And I realized that there was very little written on the subject. So we're talking, there were probably about a hundred books that I found, um, both in print and out of print, and you could very quickly read them all. And that may sound like a lot to some listeners. It may sound like very little. And really, if you think of it as an academic field, it's really a tiny amount. So I thought, well, maybe I could turn my attentions to this from an academic perspective and actually contribute, even though at the time I was just a a 
early 20s uh, graduate student. And so that's how I turned to this subject. I wrote the novel. I was very lucky. It sold and became an international bestseller and allowed me to establish a career as a writer. Um, and with the promotion from it, coupled with um, some really lucky promotion that I got because I had set up a conference at Cambridge where I was doing another postgraduate degree that turned out to have been the first to bring together academics and art, please. And it was covered by a journalist who wrote a feature about it in the New York Times Magazine in December 2006. And it was just lucky that he covered it. And it was also lucky that that came out at the same time that my novel was being promoted. And it, it allowed me to get this sort of promotion that you really couldn't buy um, to establish myself when I really didn't have um, the gray hairs and the bona fides yet. I hadn't even finished my PhD. At that point, I hadn't started my PhD, but I was already um, considered to have some expertise in the field. And I was giving lectures and teaching at university and whatnot. And part of that was, was founding this research group, the first trustees of which were the people who attended that Cambridge conference and were really supportive of my work. I've heard you talk about criminalistics and that you first encountered that in Slovenia. And I was wondering how that played into ARCA's approach to art crime? Well, criminalistics is a, is a word that a lot of people will not be familiar with. It sounds intriguing, and it certainly is, but it's something before I spent a lot of time in uh, Slovenia, which was part of ex-Yugoslavia. And the when I hear the Yugoslav policing system, I have this um, incorrect association with like sort of KGB uh, Russian uh, secret police, and it wasn't at all like that. Um, they had one of the most balanced uh, policing systems, and it was really designed to not allow for um, the sort of corruption that, that you could find in other systems, including in systems like the North American one. And one of the tricks that they use is criminalistics is basically a hybrid of um, policing, detective work, criminology, and criminal justice. Um, and so the people involved, this is detectives, this is not, you know, beat cops, but people who are investigating crimes, um, particularly more serious crimes like uh, organized crime, homicide, um, economic crimes units. They have uh, quite impressive training in criminal justice and law that you wouldn't expect from a detective. And, and frankly, in the North American system, um, you, you wouldn't expect for someone who wasn't um, at, at a fairly high managerial level, at least. So they're bringing in a lot of theory. And part of it is that they have a, a role that we don't really have in, in other systems um, called uh, investigative judge, I think is the best term. And this is someone who accompanies detectives, but has judicial powers. And it means that you can get a warrant on the go if you need to, and if there's compelling evidence. Um, and they also have these attempts to minimize the chances of hypothesis bias. So there's this training techniques that I think are fascinating and are applicable beyond the confines of criminal investigation. And one is that we have this hypothesis bias that is really problematic because if you go into a scene and you have this idea of who the perpetrator probably is, we have this human tendency to um, overlook information that contradicts the idea we had when we came into the situation and to proactively search for confirmations of our hypothesis. But the hypothesis might be wrong. 
And you can see this, for example, with things like recent presidential elections and fake news issues where people who have an idea tend to find information that backs it up, whether or not that's real, and tend to ignore things that contradict them because everybody wants to be right. So that when you approach a crime scene, one of the things that is taught is you're supposed to maintain multiple potential interpretations for what happened at the crime scene at once. And they should be sort of suspended in your thought process. And they recommend having at least five of them. So not only are we going to say, okay, this person who was caught holding the gun that was used in the murder is the murderer. They may be, but we have to come up with other options so that we're not hyper-focused on any one. Then as more clues come to the fore that allow you to eliminate one of these five, you should remove it and then replace it with a fresh one until you cannot come up with so many plausible interpretations. And in theory, the one you're left with is the correct one. But the basic premise is to avoid this hypothesis bias that is really uh, a pervasive problem in criminal investigation, but also in life in general. The courses that ARCA offers, as well as the Amelie conference that I think is being hopefully rescheduled for 2022, yeah. is this type of material an example of what might be covered in the courses or the conference? Well, so ARCA every year uh, when there's not a pandemic, we run what was the first academic program in the world where you could study art crime. Um, now several others have followed suit, but we've been doing this for 12 years now. Um, and it's interdisciplinary. So you have 10 professors, each for a two week period, a 25 hour long master's level course. Um, and it is very intense and very pleasant. And you're in a beautiful Umbrian hilltop town in central Italy, a town called Amelia, now the base of Arca. Um, and every summer, we also host the only conference in the world that's annual on the study of art crime. And it's usually the last weekend in June. So um, we, we are hopefully going to resume everything in 2022. We're going to move some of our courses online in the near future. Um, but being in Italy for the summer and devoting uh, yourself to an interdisciplinary immersion in, in the study of art crime is really a special experience that we want to maintain. So the, the online equivalent wouldn't be quite the same. Um, we do teach these techniques, but it depends on the course. So my course is the history of art crime. So I'm essentially a, an art historian and historian of crime and looking at past cases and what information we can extract from them to apply to contemporary issues. We also have a criminology course. We have um, archaeology and antiquities looting. We have an art law course. Um, we're trying to give the those who enroll, I hesitate to say students because we've had people age 21 up to around 80 from around the world and from all different backgrounds, including a lot of investigators, um, insurance folks, archaeologists, museum folks. Um, so the participants get an incredibly well-rounded three-dimensional look at this world, which is inherently interdisciplinary. So some of this is covered in the criminology section, but one of the benefits is it's a combination of theoreticians, I guess, like me, and people who are actually out in the field. So our investigation and policing course is taught by Dick Ellis, who used to run Scotland Yard's Arts and Antiques Unit. And our museum security course is taught by Dick Trent, who used to be security director of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. So you get people who are actually out in the field, and then you get folks who are um, historians and academics. 
In terms of what we do as an organization, ARCA doesn't investigate ourselves, but we do frequently advise um, investigators, uh, police forces around the world, the Carabinieri quite often, um, private investigators too. Um, and we're basically, if there's research-based questions that look historically or internationally that investigators don't have the time or training to, to think to ask, we can often contribute um, advice based on past historical case studies, or we have a, a very elaborate um, private database of the criminal networks in art crime, not just like Interpol maintains a list of stolen works of art, but actually the actors involved and how they're connected to each other. Um, and that is something that police forces um, and district attorney's offices will often consult. You mentioned the Carabinieri, and I had heard, I think, from one of your talks that their recovery rate, which we, I knew it was much better than anywhere else, but uh, that it's like 30% versus 6 to 10% elsewhere. And I was curious um, from when you gave those statistics to now if it had improved, but also was. Uh, your thought on why the Carabinieri has such a better recovery rate? Do they employ those criminalistic methods that you were talking about, or is there something else about what they do? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the Italian system doesn't, as far as I know. This is really, the criminalistics is um, a, a Yugoslav uh, phenomenon that people who grew up in that system are using, um, in Slovenia certainly, um, I imagine in places like Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, they still have it in place, but it's not something that people outside of that system are usually familiar with. Um, the Italian system, um, I, I have to say that I'm not sure what the latest statistics are, um, and recovery rates are usually very bad. We had one article in the Journal of Art Crime, which is a peer-reviewed academic journal that, that ARCA has been publishing, the first in the field for more than a decade. There was one article that showed that recovery of stolen art plus successful prosecution rates were as low as 1.5%. So we're really bad, bad at that, and that's that's um, it's globally. But there are a number of issues at hand. One is that most countries have no dedicated art police at all. Um, stolen art is lumped in with stolen property. So you're going to have someone who's in charge of like cigarette smuggling. You have someone who's in charge of car theft. But a stolen Rembrandt and a DVD player are put in the same file. And you can imagine why this can cause problems, especially in terms of access to data. You have to go fishing to find the, the cultural heritage objects uh, in stolen property cases because they aren't necessarily tagged in a way that makes them searchable. Um, also, the priorities uh, have gone elsewhere because, frankly, there isn't enough fear about art crime. That doesn't mean that people should be scared uh, in a proactive way they are, the way they are terrorists or something like that. But um, because there isn't public concern, public generally associates art crime with a handful of cinematic heists that are probably not really affecting anyone except the victim. That's the assumption. That isn't the case in actuality, but that's what most people think. And so there isn't pressure put on local governments and police departments to address it. So as a result, um, most countries have no art police at all. Um, there's one person in all of the Netherlands, for example. Um, yeah, but Italy takes it very seriously because cultural heritage is a big deal of agents. And so the quantity of agents and the focus is 
is one of the reasons why they have um, a much more cultural heritage crime than I think most countries are. Because it's on their radar, um, they have by far the most reported art thefts per year. Um, there have been some years with over 20,000. Um, and worldwide, there's, you know, 50, 60,000 reported a year. It depends on the year. But most countries have around 800 to 1,000. Um, but Italy has will have 10, 20,000, no problem. So the quantity is, is one issue. The other side is just that they take it seriously in other countries. If they had the resources dedicated, they would probably have stronger recovery rates as well. ARCA's CEO, Linda Albertson, I'd read that she was involved with the Transnational Crime Mapping Project. I think that's what its uh, title is. And I was curious, is that part of ARCA? And can you speak to a description of that? That's one where Linda, who has been running ARCA for um, nearly, a, maybe more than, no, nearly a decade now, um, it has a lot of projects that she leads. Basically, ARCA is a partner in men, um, and uh, that's not one that we're leading. Um, but the partnerships, our availability, um, the, the database that she's put together, um, our involvement in consulting, that happens quite a lot. But this one is one where um, she's associated with it, but not leading it. She had written in one of ARCA's blog posts that uh, it was in relation to Latchford Estates uh, return of certain works to uh, Cambodia. And so her question that she posed in the blog was whether justice was truly being served uh, with this restitution. And I thought that was sort of emblematic of the whole blog. Uh, and I wondered if you would agree that that really is the crux of what the blog is going for. And there's such detailed articles that give you context for, say, if a restitution is happening, the backstory that you might not get in a regular news feed is that they uh, had been asking for years for restitution and it only occurred after a legal filing, for example. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on the blog and what, what stands out about it. To me, that's what stands out. Well, I, I think one of the things that's good about it is most people associate art crime as just a couple of incidents a year that are the really big sort of sexy filmic heists. And that is um, one aspect of it, but it's really a tiny one. It's probably 1% of, of the cases. And by focusing in on cases that people otherwise might not have thought about, um, you can create a constellation that shows the whole when you take a step back and look at it. And any one of these case studies um, may details, but there's there's a running theme where um, institutions in particular don't do the right thing until they're sort of cornered and threatened, and then they'll spin what they're doing as them being benevolent, um, when in fact they were kind of stuck and had to do it. Um, there's just countless examples. This is the way that Italy has recovered um, most of uh, the cultural heritage objects that were looted, the high profile ones, the Euphronius crater, um, the issue with the Getty bronze, um, uh, the, the uh, Getty Aphrodite. There's a lot of these cases, unfortunately, and initially institutions try to hold on to them. They claim we didn't know, or they say, prove it that this is looted because we want to keep it. Um, and then when it's been proven to them, they don't want to be sued. So the threat of a lawsuit is usually sufficient for them to turn on the PR engine and, and spin the story that they're voluntarily giving it back. 
Um, and it, it is going back, which is good. But um, it, if you just read the headlines, then you might think that there's a lot of um, well-meaning institutions out there who can't wait to return things that are problematic, when in fact, it's usually um, like pulling teeth. Would you have any suggestions for anyone who happens to have or has inherited work that they think is looted, what the first steps might be for them to, um, you know, in layman's terms, uh, to check on the authenticity and to perhaps step up for restitution? Well, for one thing, I would say um, congratulations for being an un- unusually good person, <laughs> because I think most people would, would prefer to, to, um, to not notice Um there's a lot that you can do um, uh, just from home on online. You can check um, stolen works of art databases to make sure that it doesn't appear there. Um, if if it does, if you're concerned that you have something and you want to return it, then that, that's always a good thing. And you should notify local um, law enforcement um, that will likely put you in touch with um, um, uh, either a district attorney's office or someone who is related to the Ministry of Culture or the Arts Squad of the country to which it would be returned. There are also various institutions, a lot of them nonprofits, that deal with the return of Holocaust-era art. So um, one that's a a sister institution of ARCA, and we collaborate with them a lot, is called HARP, the Holocaust Art Restitution Project. Um, That would be another great guest for you, Mark Mazarowski, who runs that. Um, And so that's the kind of institution that you can contact. Um, and they will know in which direction to point you. Then there are also um, basically art lawyers who can handle this on your behalf. Um, and uh, it may be a question of whether you're you're really feeling like such a, a solid citizen that you want to just return it, or um, some people might want to return it in exchange for some sort of reimbursement of the cost that, uh, that they put out in getting it. Or there's a lot of potentially complicating details, which is why it may be best to talk to an art lawyer first and then let them point you in the right direction. Um, You don't want to accidentally get into trouble, but it's always better to volunteer something and say, is this anyone's, does it need to be returned? Um, Because that's the least amount of trouble one could possibly get into in the most goodwill. Um, And what you don't want to have happen is to, to ignore something and then have people come chasing after an object when, and especially if there's an indication that you probably should have known better then that can lead to trouble. For the Missing Masterpieces exhibition that you uh, were affiliated with recently, is that, uh, well, I was curious if there had been any uh, tips that had emerged from that or any recoveries and also, uh, you, I had read, had said that works for that exhibition you had put in there if it had certain potential for being recovered. And I was curious what that criteria was. So that was a, a with Samsung um, that we did. All, and that was uh, very popular and got a lot of uh, interest. So that was a really good thing. The concept was to um, take advantage of the fact that in the pandemic, We're stuck at home. We can only enjoy virtual art exhibitions. So instead of having to settle for a virtual exhibition when you'd rather be at one in person, um, to create an exhibition that could only be virtual. And it featured 12 works of art that are lost. Um, Only one of them we know is definitively 
laws. That's the Colossus of Rhodes. Um, the others are stolen or mislaid and hopefully could be recovered. Um, and we got a lot of tips, but what's interesting is we got a lot of tips for other works, not necessarily the ones that we featured, which is fine because it's all, it's all interesting. Um, it, there were really a lot of things came out of the woodwork. A lot of people contacted us saying that there was something missing from their family and, and who could they contact to try to get help recovering it. Um, the, the biggest news that came out of that is the thief of Van Gogh's um, parsonage um, was arrested. Um, the parsonage painting is still missing. Uh, hopefully it'll be recovered soon, but the thief was arrested. So that was a, a very good um, uh, and concrete benefit. No clues on the white duck. I read that uh, Jean-Baptiste white duck, there was a clue that it was in an attic. Yeah, um, the, 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 the lead was um, uh, insufficiently specific to be useful, I think, which is often the case. One of the problems is that you get a lot of leads most of them from well-meaning people. Some people, just because they don't have that much to do that day, they think they're going to call in a lead that may or may not be relevant. And the police have to figure out which ones to follow up. Um, just to give you an example, one of my books is on uh, the Ghent altarpiece, which is the most frequently stolen artwork in history. And one panel of it, which was stolen in 1934, is still missing. And its absence is still very much in the the cultural oxygen of the people of Ghent. There's uh, the last trip I did before the pandemic closed things down was to give a talk at a police conference in Ghent about this theft. Um, and there's always a policeman there who has assigned this case. It's still ongoing, but they get um, over a hundred leads a year. They follow up around a dozen of them. And some recent ones, they, they dug up part of a public square in Ghent. Um, they dug up uh, a portion of a car park um, there's, some of them are really kooky, but, uh, they do follow up anything that they think is of merit, but a lot of them are wild goose chases. And of course they haven't found anything yet, but, you know, hope springs eternal that these works of art, especially one like that, that was, um, stolen by people who are aware of its value and would not want to harm it, that it is sitting somewhere. The people who knew where it was are deceased. Um, and it's just a matter of, of probably luck to come across it at some point, but it's still there. And, and that that does give hope. One of the things I like about um, lost art is the terminology. So in art history terms, we have lost versus extant. So extant is the fancy word for saying we know where an object is located. Even if it's in a private collection, you can't actually visit it. You know where it is and it's accounted for. Lost is a catch-all term for works of art that could be destroyed, certainly, possibly, literally missing, misattributed, stolen, you name it, but lost implies that they can be found again. And every year there are these you know, semi-miraculous stories of really important works that were lost and are somehow stumbled upon. And that gives hope that others may have a similar happy ending. In your book, Museum of Lost Art, uh, you mentioned the Justice Cycle panels and those I thought first it was interesting that you put them on par, I think, with uh, Van Eyck's Mystic Lamb. Or if you would describe what about the Justice Cycle panels uh, raises it to that level, and also uh, paintings that depict justice. You have several of those in the start of your book, and, and I was curious uh, if you had any others that you would recommend lost or found. Huh. So that's a good question. I, I don't think I ever thought about focusing on the theme of justice. That one. When it was created, it was Roger van der Weyden's masterpiece. 
Now, when we talk about him, we look at his deposition painting at the Prado in Madrid, and that's the one that's in all the intro to art history books, and it's completely wonderful. But if you asked him what was his best painting and the one that he would want to be known for posterity, it's the Justice of Trajan and Herkenblad, which are two, two people you'd be forgiven for not knowing who, who they are. Um, and we know about it from um, contemporary accounts about how wonderful it was and how influential, and it was a point of pilgrimage for anyone cultured who came to Brussels. Um, and we know what it looks like roughly because there's a surviving tapestry based on it. Um, but it was destroyed, unfortunately, in a fire in Brussels, um, I think in the seven, early 17th century. And it's a shame um, because we have this sense, and this is really why I wanted to write that book, The Museum of Lost Art. We have what I call a survivor bias, where we tend to focus on the works of art we can still visit, which is fair enough, it's easier to study them and see them and we have really good images of them. Um, but it means that there's a few we're focusing on at, and we have this impression that those are the ones that are, and those are the ones that survive that are most important. But there are works like the just were important, even more so than some that survived um, when they first, were created, but because of you know the happenstance of, of history, um, they haven't, and so we tend to ignore them or overlook them. So the idea was you could imagine a negative space history of art looking only at works that didn't survive, but when they did, they were hugely important and influential. So no other suggestions on other justice paintings? <laughs> Justice-themed paintings? I have to think about that. That's a great question. And I, I, you've stumped me because I never thought to focus on the justice theme. Um, I'll get back to you on that one. For um, your new book, The Devil in the Gallery, uh, I was curious if um, you would describe a little bit about that and, and the inspiration for it. Sure. Um, so the next book, it's called The Devil in the Gallery, How Scandal, Shock, and Rivalry Made the Art World. And um, this is another sort of negative space approach, like Museum of Lost Art. But in this case, I found myself realizing that the things that we associate as absolutely negative for any career, scandal, shock, and rivalry, actually benefited the art world. And when, when you look at art history anecdotes, particularly those in the Vasari, 16th century uh, group impression of what makes good art is really what we inherited today. And my 2017 book, Collector of Lives, Giorgio Vasari and the Invention of Art is, is about him and his influence. But if we look at him and also at pretty much any art history book, the anecdotes are about rivalries and crazy stuff that happened, scandals that people got themselves into. And when I thought about it, I realized that each one of those in almost every case, advanced the artist's reputation. This negative was a positive in the case of artists. And these rivalries stimulated artists to try harder or to outdo the others. And there's a little bit of, you know, capitalist economics in that. Um, but a lot of it was, you know, um, I'm going to stick it to this guy who's my main competition in this region, and I'm going to do a better job. And part of it is also the fun of these inside jokes in art history, where if you know enough about it, you start to recognize quotes from detail in a previous work of art added to a later one. And, you know, a cultured audience is meant to get that connection. And an example is when Caravaggio in 1599 
um, painted The Calling of St. Matthew for a church in Rome. He has a hand of Jesus pointing to St. Matthew that's the exact duplicate of the hand um, of God creating Adam by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel ceiling about 100 years earlier. And Caravaggio's name was Michelangelo Medici. Um, and he's basically saying there's a new Michelangelo in Rome, guys. And look, I can do what the last one did, but I can do other things even better. And that sort of rivalry, even of someone who lived a century later, to me, that's fun. And it's a fun sort of treasure hunt for art historians. And so I tried to put that together and and take a critical look at is this this is me trying to avoid hypothesis bias. Is my impression correct that these three negative things have really stimulated both the course of art in general and the careers of most of the artists involved? And the answer was yes. So it's a collection of, I think, really fun stories of scandals and rivalries, but each one advanced the course of art as a whole or the careers of the people involved. There is a, a talk you gave on the Caravaggio calling of St. Matthew, and I love your analysis of the different take on, on which one of the characters in the painting is St. Matthew. So I encourage anyone listening to, if they haven't, to, to listen to that. Uh, you're a wonderful storyteller. Thank you. That's very kind. And good for you for doing all of this research. I'm usually invited on podcasts and people are like, so who are you again? <laughs> so I appreciate all the detailed research you did. <laughs> so interesting. And so actually, uh, going to one other point, uh, I had read that you'd pointed to Vasari's folios that were missing. Uh, I believe it was a dozen of them, that that was uh, certainly one to look for. And uh, I was wondering if you had a top three list of, of missing paintings to locate. Oh, that's that's fun. Well, I, I would say that the one you mentioned is number one. Uh, Vasari was the first proactive collector of drawings before people thought that drawings were of interest, that people previously thought the drawings were like the blueprints for a building. You would keep the building, but you wouldn't necessarily keep the blueprints. But Vasari collected drawings by as many of the artists he admired as he could find, and he pasted them into 12 large folio volumes, which he called the Libri di Disegni, or the Book of Drawings. And he would also make his own um, homage drawings in the style of the master around the margins. So this was like a portable museum, and it was um, thought of as such. And um, nobody knows where they are. Um, they're individual pages that survive. There's some at the Uffizi. Um, but there's no whole folio that survives, and only a few pages are extant. So one hopes that maybe one or more of those 12 volumes is sitting somewhere hidden, which would be wonderful. That, that's that's probably number one. Number two, just because um, it's uh, I've written about it so much, is um, uh, Leonardo's Lost Battle of Anghiari, which um, was painted in the Palazzo Vecchio, and uh, it was unfinished. And then um, uh, a few decades later, Vasari had to renovate this room in the Palazzo Vecchio, the Sala del Cinquecento, where this painting was made. And he was a great fan of Leonardo's, and he would not have voluntarily um, uh, destroyed the work in order to renovate the room. Um, and there is compelling evidence that he created a false wall over the work to preserve it, but fulfill the commission. And then he left a clue um, as to where to look. And in there, there's a false wall. So one of the, the 
stories that opens my book on Vasari and ends it is the search for this lost Leonardo battle, um, which is on pause due to Italian bureaucracy. <laughs> Italian, Italy's totally charming until you want to get something done. And then the bureaucracy makes it a good deal less charming. Um, so that would probably be, be number two. Number three would maybe be um, the justice cycle. That one is is completely, I mean, 99.9% certainly destroyed. So um, I'm not sure that there's hope remaining, but um, I my favorite things to see are works in situ. There's something special about the, the pilgrimage to see a great work that you have to make a journey to. And which would have been the case for Battle of Angiati mm-hmm. if it had if it if it was visible. Yeah. For that piece, some people portray it as just completely destroyed because of a new method that was being used that wasn't even a viable painting anymore. And I was curious what your thoughts were on that. It seems like you've been an advocate for having it revealed and then the counter argument that you might be destroying or removing a a painting meant for a certain location just to get to a painting that was destroyed. And I was curious uh, what your rationale was for advocating for potential removal. Okay. I'm certain that the painting is where we think it is and that Vasari built a false wall. He built a false wall also in the church um, uh, across the the river in Florence where um, he was asked to renovate and renovation would have destroyed Masaccio's Holy Trinity painting. And this is one of the iconic paintings in history, hugely influential. It's on any sort of top 10 list of most influential paintings. And we only have it thanks to his ingenuity. He built a false wall over it and it was considered lost until I think it was the 1860s um, when another renovation rediscovered it. So there, there is a, um, uh, a case study that indicates that this was his modus operandi when he wanted to preserve something that he valued. However, research has shown that there is a gap of only four centimeters between the false wall on which he painted his fresco and an original wall. And for uh, Leonardo had this unfinished. He also used a fresco secco technique, meaning that it was not traditional fresco painted in wet plaster, but on dry plaster. He was often experimenting with techniques. And so it is very likely that it's there, but in such a state that there's basically nothing to see. So I think revealing it would be anticlimactic um, aesthetically, but satisfying um, in terms of the story and and the historical reference. That's probably my best guess. And uh, The Collector of Lives is such a great book. Oh, good for you. Jeez, you get extra credit <laughs> for you doing your reading. Do you have any uh, recommendations for something you're reading now? I know you've given recommendations in the past on books that you would suggest, but anything recent that comes to mind? Sure. If, um, if I can be a, um, a little bit self-referential, ARCA has just started publishing books. Um, we uh, uh, launched an imprint and we have um, four books out now. And I think they're very good. One of them is is a collection of my essays on on art theft um, called The Art Thief's Handbook. Um, Another is a collection of essays for people interested in um, archeological looting and antiquities issues by David Gill called Context Matters. 
Um, we have uh, a book by Edgar Tayhouse, who's the academic director of ARCA and is an art lawyer and criminologist um, uh, called Transnational Art Crime that examines the, the interaction between national actors uh, involved in art crime. And then we published a book by um, Leon Pogelschuk and Slavko Pregel, two Slovenian authors, called The Secret Collector. And this is interesting because it's written like a novel, but it's actually based on the best available scholarship and one inside source about what happened to a famous lost art collection of Eric Slomovic, who was a Croatian Jew um, who had an art collection that was in Paris during World War II. Um, with over 400 masterpieces in it, um, and uh, some of them are missing, and some of them were involved in a train crash um, and picked up and, and spirited off, and um, there are various theories as to where they are. So it's a bit of a treasure hunt, but it's written in a way that feels like you're reading a novel, but the information is based on, on historical information and, and the best available knowledge. So those are ones I might point people to, um, and your purchase of them supports ARCA's research activities, so you're doing a good deed as well. Your handbook uh, that you referenced, is that related to forgeries or, or looting? No, this one is um, all about art theft. Um, I think there's one section on forgery, but um, I tried to concentrate all my forgery writings into my 2015 book, The Art of Forgery, which was published by Fiden, which is an illustrated book. So this one is um, uh, a collection of essays on uh, various aspects of art theft um, and uh, approach it in a way that is informative but, but fun. And it's the, the style of writing that I would use for popular magazines. Um, and the title of the Art Thief's Handbook is, is basically a pun between my novel, The Art Thief, and Eric Hibbern's famous book, The Art Forger's Handbook, which is basically a cookbook for how to forge works of art. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.